Hello and welcome to Best of Shows, a weekly conversation about the biggest things happening on the small screen and a guide to what TV is and is not worth your time. I'm Kristen Baldwin, TV critic at Entertainment Weekly, and I'm joined by my fellow EW critic and TV junkie, Darren Franich. Hi, Darren. How are you? Kristen, I have to say, we've been doing this podcast for I don't know how long, years, decades, (laughs) Um, but uh, I have never been as excited about talking about uh, TV shows as I am for the shows we are going to talk about today. I've been anticipating this all week, actually. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) You're going to kill me. Uh, Yes, we have a lot to talk about uh, this week, and the reason you're excited, I think, is uh, because our first show is one that we have sort of uh, different different thoughts on, different opinions about. Um, we'll kick things off with our What's New segment, in which Darren and I talk about this week's most notable new and returning show premieres. So HBO's scripted series Chernobyl premieres tonight, May 6, at 9 p.m., and the five-part series tells the horrific true story of the 1986 nuclear plant disaster in the Soviet Union. Mad Men's Jared Harris stars as Valerie Legasov, the real-life nuclear physicist, who was brought in to help investigate the causes of the explosion and help mitigate the overwhelming spread of radiation. He's aided by a nuclear physicist played by Emily Watson and monitored closely by the Soviet Union's deputy prime minister played by Stellan Skarsgård, who, along with the Russian government, wants to minimize the scope of the disaster on the world stage. So, Darren, as you know, Chernobyl begins with Legasov's suicide. He hung himself on the second anniversary of the crisis in real life. And it only gets darker and more harrowing from there. Uh, The scenes of the explosion and its aftermath are terrifying and very realistically graphic. And the tension and dread carries through every scene, whether it's taking place in the rubble outside the power plant or in a boardroom packed with government officials. It's exceptionally well done. Jared Harris gives another riveting performance, but oh, after two episodes, I was so traumatized and depressed. I had to turn it off, and I'm just not sure I'm going to be able to go back. But Darren, I feel like you maybe had a different feeling about uh, watching Chernobyl. Kristen, as you said, this show begins with the suicide of its main protagonist, and then uh, really the next two hours, the the two episodes that follow, are a near real-time look at one of the most horrific events in the history of our species. And at one point in the first episode, you are very aware, knowing what we know now about Chernobyl, that everyone on screen is dying slowly. There are the horrors of kind of radiation poisoning, which a lot of the people at the time were not really aware of, as they were sent sending in firefighters to be very close to an open nuclear reactor. Um, It is all so horrifying, and Chernobyl itself is such a terrifying thing to think about that the only thing the human mind can do is really look away from it. And Kristen, I love this show. I absolutely love it. You sound like a monster! One of the things things I like about doing this podcast with you, Kristen, is it's it's helped me kind of zero in a little bit on what some of my likes are. And I, I, I think what I'm discovering is the way that some people respond to true life stories of the glamorous English monarchy. That's how I respond to bitter, horrific, true life stories from inside the Soviet Union. Um, This show is definitely uh, not a fun time in the way that other shows on TV are trying to be fun. And even in the context of making a a miniseries about a horrible event, I'd say Chernobyl sets a new standard for um, just the 
sort of sobriety and somberness that it brings to the material. Um, but I just found it to be utterly fascinating. Um, you know, everything about the Chernobyl disaster, which I thought I had kind of a vague sense of in a very pure, you know, historical event that I maybe read about once or twice in school kind of a way. And just the first two episodes, especially as they take you through this moment by moment portrait of the complete breakdown and in information, um, you know, one of the best and in a way, most vivid aspects of this show is that as much as it is about this disaster that is both a natural disaster and a, a disaster of science, you know, it has that quality of being a true life version of a science fiction story and yeah. a true life version of a kind of apocalypse story. Um, it is as much focused on the politics of Chernobyl. And of course, you say, well, what could possibly be political about it? There's an open nuclear reactor that is <laughs> right. feeding radiation into the air. And Kristen, you kind of mentioned watching the first two episodes there are so many moments in the opening hours of chernobyl where someone will walk into a room and say um the nuclear reactor has exploded and the <laughs> response sorry, from funny. no i i know I, and listen everyone just you know we're, we're, we're laughing at this in the way that characters on the show ultimately have to kind of laugh at it because it's just so it's, it's, it's just so, so awful incomparably awful i mean like I, you know at one point a character says that a certain section of chernobyl is the most dangerous place on the planet and you could arguably extend that to the most dangerous spot in the solar system outside right. of the sun um and and, and 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 yet so someone will walk into a room and, and deliver this news and then a kind of political functionary will just say something to the effect of, no, the reactor's fine. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and it like... happens over and over again. And Ugh. it really gave me an appreciation, you know, for this poor actual man, Valery Lagasov, who is just, you know, he's a physicist. He's not, you know, he's being brought into these this government commission to help, you know, control the disaster and figure it out. And, you know, the KGB exists and this is not a, you know, it's not a great oh. place to live, uh, the Soviet Union at this time. And he's got the bravery, you know, he's so horrified at what he's read in this report. And he knows that the details, seeing the details in the report that like, this is way worse than anyone is thinking it could be. Yeah. He's got the bravery to be like, no, 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 we've actually got to do something. There's a meeting in the first or second episode with Gorbachev. And they're all like, yep, everything's fine. And he calls the meeting to a halt because he just can't stand by well and, and 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 that scene is is so incredible and it's an example of something that happens a lot on this show where jared harris is sort of called upon to explain the science yeah. to the other people in the room and of course to the audience and as much as that can feel you know very explicitly like he's speaking to us we people who know nothing about the nuclear reactor it, it is a incredible um, and tangible effect that whenever he's just describing the metrics and the statistics of what are going on, it, it is, again, it is unthinkable in my very small head. Right. You know, the, the numbers <laughs> that he will throw around about how, like, you know, there is this much radiation going into the atmosphere and it's going to affect the continent. You, right. You know, and, and for a hundred um, years. For a hundred years. And, and that area will be uninhabitable for, I, I think it's like 24,000 years. It's all these numbers that you just can't conceive of. And in... Um, 
I believe it's in the first or second episode, you meet a character played by Emily Watson, who is a scientist in Minsk, I believe, and they start to feel the radiation effects or, or, or they start to measure it. And they're like 200 kilometers away. And it's just all this stuff that, you know, as much as this is a really um, as much as it can be, they are going for like the realism of this time and place. The only real comparison I can make is to something like The Walking Dead or some kind of science fiction show, because just what is happening here, something that really has never happened before or, 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 um, in, or in quite the same way since, it is just kind of beyond our understanding as humans. I do find if there's one part of it that I would say is quote unquote entertaining Kristen um, <laughs> which again he heavy quotes in a yes. show about the, the slow and horrible death of so many things in the area of, of this event um, th there's a character played by Stellan Skarsgård uh, who appears so he's really great he appears late in the first episode um, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting his name now he, he's a true life uh, Soviet uh, grandee who kind of gets paired up with Jared Harris's scientist and I don't want to say they sort of form a buddy duo at the center of all of this, but there's a quality of their dynamic that helps to kind of ground the show a, a little bit in something beyond utter despair. Um, you know, Stellan Skarsgård is very much a man of the party. He's someone who has spent his whole life within the Communist Party. It's very clear that he knows how to operate within this system. Mm -hmm. And initially, it seems that he's a little bit at odds with Jared Harris's scientist, who, again, is mainly focused on the fact that there is a nuclear reactor searing radiation in, into the atmosphere. Um, but I, I kind of find that there's moments like that between them that kind of help the show um, help to help it to create something beyond infinite terror, which it also does right. very well. But is that, I mean, I, I also understand the, why someone would sort of feel like, I think I'm good after that, after watching a couple hours of this. Well, it's interesting because yeah, I do think that Jared Harris and Stellan Skarsgård are so, you know, their acting styles are so complimentary in this because, you know, Stellan Skarsgård is somebody who's intimidating and whether he's playing a scary Russian, you know, official or anything else, he's got, you know, that very intimidating and sort of severe demeanor. And Jared Harris does controlled panic like nobody else, you know, and <laughs> and so together, you know, having them go off of each other it really and slowly you see that the government official is starting to realize like this guy's right. And and I'm going to try within the, the very limiting uh, boundaries I have as a Soviet official to do the right thing. Uh, and, you know, I do I do like their dynamic. I think, honestly, I may just need to take a break from it because you yeah. were slacking me the other day with stuff that happens in episode three. And it, I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting and I want to watch it. But I think I just need to, like, take some long breaks in between it. I do wonder... And, you know, everybody has a different appetite for this kind of thing. Uh, you know, I don't ever watch The Walking Dead or I don't even really like Game of Thrones or things that are very violent or yeah. gory. Also, anything where people are like dirty all the time. I don't like that. Um, <laughs> that's not necessarily the case here, but it's very, you know, this is all the more disturbing because it's real. Yeah. And, you know, this poor man did kill himself. And like all of these people were just, you know, uh, uh, just destroyed by this awful disaster. I do wonder if I had have a 
bit more of a an appetite or a tolerance for this type of thing if like the world in general right now wasn't a total garbage fire but um you know everybody ha it really depends on what your tolerance is i do think i probably will keep watching because darn it it's good but yeah it's I, I'm not going to be able to certainly binge it by any means. Uh, and I'll probably just have to watch like six episodes of Gilmore Girls in between each one <laughs> just to like get get out of this headspace. Well, Kristen, that's the one difference between you and me is I literally did binge this show. Oh but I, 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 I will I will say p part of what made it bingeable for me is that um, once you get to the third episode, um, just the scope kind of expands a little bit. The first two episodes are, as you mentioned, first episode is essentially minute by minute for a while as you're kind of following this disaster. And as the show goes along, more time is passing there's just a general feeling that whereas the first episode literally everything that's happening is all just terrifying and you are seeing you know mothers and fathers and children who are way too close to the to the disaster yeah. just sort of hanging out not aware of the horrors that are kind of already entering into their bloodstream mm -hmm. episode three and four it becomes a little bit of a mystery at times um, Emily Watson's character who she I from what I gather from my two seconds of research i think she's the one character who's really been sort of a combination of a lot of mm -hmm. different people yeah and you know a as a result she's kind of the character who is most obviously kind of trying to stitch certain certain strands together into a story um but her performance is really wonderful and a lot of what she's doing is trying to get to the bottom of what happened um it, it is said quite often that the explosion that occurred should not have been able to, to occur a, right. a lot of the very smart scientists are saying this um and of course everything that she's doing kind of runs alongside of the aftermath of the chernobyl disaster um there's a really wonderful figure who enters the show uh who is a kind of um boss uh of a squad of coal miners um, he kind of enters the show and kind of briefly takes it over and there's just a great scene one of the things i really do love about the show is that as much as um you know, there are movies or TV shows you could point to that do more interesting visual things with subject matter like this. But this show is very good at kind of conjuring up these moments that really stand out. And I, I think it's a credit to writer uh, Craig Mazin and the director whose name is Johan Rank. Um, there's a scene where basically a really, really fancy looking guy in a clean suit shows up to a coal mine and says, hi, I'm the minister of coal. Like you all have to go to Chernobyl. <laughs> and the coal miners, as they're walking by this guy, they're just covered in coal, of course. They sort of pat him on the shoulder until he's completely covered in coal. That's and amazing. Just, there's great moments like that. You kind of mentioned, Kristen, the feeling that the world today is kind of a garbage fire. Yes. And I, I kind of find that there's something weirdly cathartic about the way they portray the Chernobyl story as a kind of failure of horrible, unqualified political leaders mm -hmm. as, as much as anything else. Um, there's a scene early on where Emily Watson, again, she is a nuclear physicist. She walks into the room of uh, one of the Soviet leaders. I believe he might be in charge of, of Minsk. Uh, of Minsk. I, I'm throwing out a lot of, <laughs> a lot of places, <laughs> and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing every single uh, uh, word. She sort of tells him, hey, um, we're getting all these readings. I think something's going wrong in 
Chernobyl. The guy pours himself a vodka and says Chernobyl's fine. She says, you know, before you had this political position, you were a like shoe salesman or, or a shoemaker, and I'm a nuclear physicist. And he says, well, now I'm in charge. And yeah. Kristen, I was thinking about a lot of people who currently have major political roles in yes. our system and was getting chills. So. It, it really is. I mean, it does it does really uh, clearly get across quickly the sort of just, you know, Orwellian uh, system they were in at that yeah. time and like how because of that where like somebody could be like, hi, the reactor blew up and somebody else could just be like, no, it didn't, you know, and <sighs> they just and how that kind of thing, you know, when they've got seconds to spare and barely, you know, they every minute, every minute counts. Uh, and it's all tied up in this very uh, ridiculous sort of uh, bureaucracy that is really more about, well, we don't want the Americans to find out. And then, you know, they show actual archive news footage of Peter Jennings saying there was an explosion. We know this because there's footage of it. And the Russian government had to admit it because there's footage of it. But, you know, of course, a lot, there's so much effort put into trying to uh, sort of mislead the world about how bad it is. And that's, you know, and then you have Jared Harris's character, who's like just desperately trying to like, what could be more important than stopping this? Yeah. And the answer is, unfortunately, a lot. There's a scene where Jared Harris tells Gorbachev that the reactor is now creating lava. And Gorbachev's reaction is just like, you're, you, you're creating lava? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's all, again I'm, again, I'm just laughing because every aspect of this show, every 10 minute period, you will see three or four things that are just so far beyond your comprehension and the awareness that it did happen and the awareness that the way this show kind of captures the low tech qualities of how they were reacting yes. to this thing that you know if this were to happen today and and you know th there's been other like you know nuclear incidents since then you're kind of like well you know as awful as what happened in Japan was you have this confidence in Japan as as a country as a government and being able to respond to it and here um you know the the technology that they are using and the po the political situation around that is just it's all really really haunting um and i i, I do hope people do check it out Kristen uh, Chernobyl star tonight on HBO, uh, May 6th, and runs for five episodes. Love to hear what everyone thinks. We can all have a little <laughs> colloquium of pain and sorrow yes, about this show. Like a support point. group. <laughs> uh, Kristen, speaking of shows set in totalitarian regimes, the Good Fight nice. is streaming on CBS All Access every Thursday. We've talked about this show when it debuted. Some hack at NEW said it was the best show on television. And Kristen, I have to say, uh, I feel pretty validated in saying <sighs> that based on what's gone on uh, in the intervening weeks. We just watched the eighth episode of this season of The Good Fight, uh, which we didn't even know this when we decided to talk about it this week. This was a Gary Cole-heavy episode. Absolutely. The Good Fight has also, I think, pushed ever further into more experimental territory this season. Uh, Diane, uh, who is, of course, the character played by Christine Baranski, has gotten herself involved in a resistance movement alongside her colleague Liz, played by the equally great Audra McDonald. Um, that resistance has found itself turned into ever stranger knots as it has embarked on an effort to upend the 2020 political election in ways that are frequently uh, quite haunting 
demoralizing and demoralizing uh, yes. for a liberal uh, like me. Uh, Kristen, I continue just to love this show. There's almost too much to talk about, even an individual episode, and we could do a whole podcast just about the fact that they cast Gary Carr as himself as a love interest for yes. Luca. Um, but uh, how, how are you feeling in general about this season and about this episode uh, specifically? Which again, heavy Gary Cole in this episode feels pointed uh. right in your direction. I mean, anytime there's a lot of Kurt McVeigh, which is the character Gary Cole plays, I'm down with it. And, you know, this show is always on, you know, freakishly prescient about, you know, current events and what's going to happen. And it's so interesting that the episode that uh, aired this past week, uh, all the characters were waiting for the Mueller report to come out. And, you know, it starts with images of William Barr and things like that. And this this came out, you know, just a few days after William Barr testified, you know, before uh, Congress. So it's really, it really felt incredibly timely, even more than usual. And like in the first few minutes, you've got Alan Alda, Jane Curtin, John Cameron Mitchell. They're suing, um, he's suing Chum Hum, um, which is their version of Google, which has been carried over, I think, since The Good Wife. Um, I really loved, you mentioned Gary Carr, I really loved the, the crossover between the good fight and Downton Abbey cinematic universes. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. You know, it, I felt that this past week's episode was actually sort of the most conventional one of the season. Uh, we've had in the past, you know, s- seven episodes, things like um, Diane arguing with a bruise that looks like Donald Trump, uh, Michael <laughs> Sheen singing I'll Be There by the Jackson Five, uh, other, you know, a lot of soliloquies, which we knew were coming. Uh, and this one, there was no Michael Sheen in this episode, which I think definitely did alter the tone because, and we should talk about the Michael Sheen of it all in a minute, but uh, I'd still, it was just, it just, the the sheer joy of seeing these, this cast together. And then there's this crazy twist with Gary Carr at the end when he's, you know, Luca thinks that he's, you know, falling in love with her. And in fact, no, he's not. He's got a different love and it's a dead man who formed a fake religion. Uh, so it's just, I don't know. I'm just loving it so much. I mean, I know there has been some, uh, at least within the EW ranks, there are some people who aren't loving the Michael Sheen of it all this season. What do you? What are your thoughts on that, Darren? Kristen, uh, I'm glad that we're talking about this because I know that Michael Sheen's character, Roland Blum, has been kind of controversial. Michael Sheen... When he was cast on the show, I was thinking to myself, oh, this is great. He'll be playing some like kind of fancy, you know, dapper English lawyer, maybe someone who could be a love interest for someone. I did not realize that he was instead going to be cast as this sort of pastiche figure for Trumpism and for Roy Cohnism, and also did not realize he'd be going for such an extreme Al Pacino impression. <laughs> he's, he's come on so strong, Kristen, and initially when he appeared, I was worried it was too much. And truly, Kristen, I say this as someone who loves this show, um, every week of this season, there's there are moments where I'm like, has it gone too far? Mm-hmm. Have we kind of mm-hmm. gone totally you know, past the fourth wall into the fifth wall? Um, <laughs> I've really come to love what he's brought to the show because as much as he is a cartoon character, there is this fascinating aspect to how the other characters react to him. And for me, that first sort of came to the forefront in that awesome sequence, maybe still my favorite scene of the whole 
uh, season when he first kind of met with Diane in her office. Yes. And they had this incredible conversation. And for me, that conversation seemed to imply that Roland himself is playing himself in, in, a, in a big way. Right. He has sort of become this larger-than-life figure in that scene, the way he was interacting with Diane. There was just sort of this sense that you were kind of seeing the brilliant legal mind underneath it all and what he was saying to her was just so malicious about like you know what does this point in history say about you as a progressive and your belief that things are constantly you know getting better and, and moving more towards your side um, and lately what one of the interesting things about the show is that as he's become closer and closer to all of the characters you know, they react to him in ways that are ultimately quite positive. He is this demon. You yeah. Know, there, there's, there's no way to put it. I mean, like, he, he lives in this apartment that is, like, something out of, you know, Hieronymus Bosch. But they love him, I, I, I think. And it, it, it's hard not to because he can give them what they need. He can help them politically. He can get them more money. And I, I find that in a season that in a lot of different ways is kind of about... Um, what are these characters going to do to survive in this world they don't f feel safe in? Uh, what are they going to do to change the world in the case of Diane mm -hmm. and her really vivid attempts to upend the 2020 election? And mostly what they've done are things that are like pretty bad yeah. and specifically they are things that are using what they perceive as the other side's weapons against them absolutely and I just think that's such a complicated story so, so I like him but that's my Roland Blum-esque soliloquy about it how, how do you feel about him and I guess more generally how do you feel about the just further experimentation the music all the stuff that this season has done to kind of push even further away from the kind of ground level realism of, of, of the show I you know I overall I generally just love it I mean when Diane was arguing with a bruise early on in the season I was just screaming I loved it it was so crazy <laughs> I I you know I know that they've now increased the number of those animated shorts except for this week when it was very I'm not sure if it was just a joke or if it was actually censored it's you know it was a discussion about censorship and the Chinese government and then the short was uh, replaced with a placard that said CBS censored this content <laughs> Real or not, who can say? Uh, very meta. I think, you know, I'm not loving... I don't... I think the the animated shorts sometimes feel a little forced, but they're still very fun. Um, it's interesting because I, I did think Michael Sheen was a little bit, you know, too much. And he's sort of take... He's, he is, if to put it diplomatically, making a lot of acting choices. Oh, yeah. Uh, with his... 15 choices per second. Yeah, <laughs> with his yeah. portrayal of Roland Blum. So I do... Uh, but then again, he wasn't on this episode. And I, I realized like three quarters of the way through, like, oh, this is kind of a quiet episode, I, you know? <laughs> and I was like, well, it, it's fine. I'm enjoying it, but it's kind of quiet. And I realized like he's not... Um, I do think, you know, he should be a one season and done character. I'm not sure that he's somebody that we need in the universe forever. But and and to uh, to his credit, the character of Roland Blum is the reason we were able to get the Downton Abbey crossover because he it turns out he's been passing off Gary Carr as his associate who's supposed to be helping him with this work that he's doing for uh, uh, Reddick Bozeman but in fact Gary Carr is just an actor Gary Carr researching a role so it did it did <laughs> sort of facilitate this wonderful cinematic uh, universe crossover in general I mean I really love the experimental stuff and I think that uh, this show is just 
it's just so many leagues above pretty much and anything else the the kings are uh robert and michelle king who created it and created the good wife are just clearly just having the time in their lives and really just uh so creative and getting so many actors who clearly want to play with them i mean michael yuri's on as well he he's had a recurring role as somebody who works in the nsa and i think maybe secretly harbors a little crush on diane as he monitors <laughs> her and it's just, it's such a wonderful, for me, like when the world is a garbage fire, you know, I can't get the catharsis through Chernobyl because it's, that's just too much for me and I'm too much of a wuss, but something like this where it's, it's almost like reality, but just a little askew, yeah. it feels, this feels more, uh, something that I can really dig into and, and feels a little bit more cathartic and palatable to me. Well, and one thing I've been wondering about, Kristen, you know, on the topic of topicality, which this season, even more so than last year, has really dove into. Again, there are a couple characters who are currently involved in a, you know, not the hashtag resistance, a literal resistance yeah. that are they're meeting in this sort of, you know, stage left of Les Miserables underground <laughs> secret lair. Um, one thing I've been thinking about a lot as someone who really loves this show, I, I, I try to remember, especially in these days where the onslaught of constant reality has created this boom in entertainment that is directly responsive. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do wonder sometimes, is this a show that I love now that in three years, in four years, when we are living in a different, better, I think, time, um, will it seem as if it was just kind of willfully pulling these things from the trending topics headlines yeah. without much clarity. Um, you kind of mentioned as an example in this week's episode, one of the first images is of William Barr, and it's of this conversation about a report that is going to be released mm -hmm. that is kind of run throughout the episode. And the thing that I think will really make this more than a kind of artifact, but a true document of this time, is that the Kings have very cleverly structured even the stuff that seems most ripped from the headlines on this very paradoxical and uncertain foundation. Um, in this episode, at least, that mysterious report that the news keeps talking about, just in the background, it begins to sound crazier and crazier as the news is talking about yes. it, saying, you know, you know, we think it might be an audio file and sources inside the court are saying there might be singing on there. And ultimately, it's never actually released. And that kind of connects back around to something that's been going on with the resistance and even with the fact that Melania Trump seems to have been a character this season <laughs> um, where at no point does anyone even know if they are doing what they are doing because that is the right thing to do, are they working for someone who is actually working against them? In the Melania Trump episode, um, Melania herself was talking to Luca, and Luca ultimately decided you are not who you say you are. Mm -hmm. And I find that, um, you know, on a show that in its own way is very fascinated with just this total slipperiness of reality now. And even um, th there's a kind of throwaway moment in episode eight uh, where the John Kevin Mitchell character sort of says that, oh, like that recording you have of me isn't me. It's a deep fake. I can prove it because those things exist. So you can't trust anything. Right. I just find that to be the most compelling part of it. Th that for me is what kind of brings it to a deeper and more interesting point than just sort of, you know, I 
I, I worry that people who haven't watched the show that they just think it's kind of like that fancy liberals making fun of Trump stuff. Right, and right. as much as it's that, it's also making fun of them, and yes. it's kind of questioning, you know, are these sort of fancy liberals can they even trust themselves anymore? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's such an astonishing moral landscape. To and be it in. and it does absolutely uh, take take aim at and take down the, uh, you know, like the racist liberal. There's a lot of discussion about race relations and all the people in the law firm are like, oh, we're not racist. And then they realize actually they do kind of have uh, sort of racial biases that they're not really owning up to and things like that. It does capture the mood of just disorientation that yeah. we're all feeling right now. And, the perfect it, word for and it. I think that's, as you put it, why it's going to you know, it's not ever really going to feel dated because it's I don't think this whatever happens in 2020 and beyond. I'm not sure that this will ever not feel a little disoriented again mm -hmm. in this country. Um, exactly. But again, fortunately, no open nuclear reactors nope. yet on the nope. good fight. No melting faces. But we, we honestly don't know, which is one of the things that I really <laughs> love about it. Um, everyone, if you haven't checked it out yet, please do. We'll keep talking about it here because it is going to be back for, for another season. Uh, the Good Fight is on CBS All Access. Worth it to subscribe. Yeah, Just for the good fight. Do Just it. Just for the good fight. <laughs> do it. You won't be sorry. Hey, everyone. I'm Sid Evans, editor-in-chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce season five of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. All right, guys, now it's time for TV Talk, a segment where Darren and I talk about TV, specifically the most notable TV-related news of the week. So last week, Darren, you and I discussed a Netflix show called Dead to Me, but we were very limited in our discussion because the show hadn't premiered yet, and Netflix sent a ridiculous list of do-not-reveal-plot points. Now that the show's been out for several days, I can give you some highlights, none of which are actual spoilers. Uh, some of the lists said do not reveal where Linda Cardellini's character Judy lives at the beginning of the season. Why? Doesn't Ooh. matter. Why? Don't, re don't reveal it. Do not reveal that James Marsden plays Judy's fiance. Why? Why? Again, <gasps> why? And my favorite quote, do not explicitly reveal that Judy is keeping a secret from Jen, who Secrets. is who is Christina Applegate's character. So it wasn't don't say what the secret is. It was don't even say she has a secret. And that secret is literally revealed in the first episode and there are nine more episodes. So anyway, you know, a lot of rage I got to work through about, about uh, that spoiler list because it just made me nuts. But... Um, you know, you and I were talking about this because you pointed out as I was rage slacking you about, like, can you believe this list? It's ridiculous. You pointed out that the rules outlining what are and are not spoilers really need to be re-examined in the era of binge TV, not only because the spoilers are less spoilery when you don't have to wait a week between each episode, but also because there's just so much content now fighting for eyeballs. Networks really shouldn't be limiting critics and journalists on what they can write about if they want people to get interested in their shows. Certainly, we're not going to reveal, well, in, you know, the, in the second episode, so-and-so dies 
as if it's a big deal, but like certain fundamental basic things about what makes the show interesting should be fair game. I mean, we could talk for hours about this, but I'm going to, rather than just rant for the next 20 minutes, Darren, tell me, where do you stand on spoilers right now? Kristen, it's such a struggle for me because on some level, I, I do truly think that spoilers are not a thing. Yeah. Um, well, when I think about... Um, when I was a uh, younger person growing up, reading Entertainment Weekly, learning all about the history of pop culture, um, some of my most vivid memories are of reading about things and reading spoilers about things before I actually saw them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as an EW subscriber at a time when EW was basically the Sopranos fan club and I did not have access to HBO, I kind of learned every major death on the first five seasons of the show before before ever even watching it. Yeah. Um, and yet, I then later ultimately watched The Sopranos and thought it was incredible. And, and I, I, you know, was it a different experience knowing that some characters were going to die in advance? I honestly don't think so in the long run. One of my frustrations with the general focus on spoilers um, as a combination of something the creative corporation doesn't want you to reveal and something that the most vociferous fans don't want to know. Mm-hmm. You know there, there are those kind of two sides of, uh, of the story. Is that I think it kind of underrates the extent to which your experience of something it's not just the initial viewing experience, right. you know, it is also how it lives after you see it. It's how it lives upon rewatch. There's all these other kind of aspects to it. And, you know, it, it, it's a struggle, certainly on an inside baseball level for us critics, because when we're writing about something that we like, even when we're writing about something that we don't like, we are cognizant of not wanting to like ruin the experience for anyone, but rather, I, you know, I think if there's something that I you know really love, it's the good fight. I want people to watch it and I'll kind of do everything I can right. in my capacity as a writer to make that happen. Now sometimes I, I think that involves revealing some of the crazy things that happen on the show. I, I kind of th- you know, I, you know if, if, if CBS All Access were to send through a spoiler list saying, you know, do not reveal that Diane becomes part of a resistance movement, I, I would kindly respond that's a big part of this season. Yeah. And that's a big part of what's interesting about this season. Um, so it's just I, I, I find it's tricky, Kristen, you kind of mentioned, is there a way to kind of rewrite the rule book? One thing that I thought was interesting, because we've been talking about this spoiler issue for a while, is that just this, um, a, a couple of weekends ago, you kind of had two big pop culture events yeah. that spoke to this in their own way. There was Avengers Endgame, uh, where the directors, the Russo brothers, literally had sort of tried to get a hashtag going about don't spoil the endgame. Right. Um, and of course, there was the Game of Thrones battle episode, uh, where the only major spoiler was that it was impossible to see anything. And <laughs> I, I, I think it's interesting because, um, you know, I, I would be lying if I said when I went to see Endgame in the theater, uh, was I aware of the fact that there, might, there were people who might have been coming out of other theaters loudly yelling, I can't believe Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. Right. You, you know, I, you know th- there was a part of me that was a little antsy about that. But... I'd actually heard a pretty major spoiler about the movie going into it, about the fate of one of the characters. And, uh, you know, it didn't really change my experience yeah. of, the, of the movie. And I, I, I just sort of worry that, 
as much as I understand people who say, I don't want to know anything about a thing in advance. Right. And I, I feel that way about shows that I really, really, really like love and cherish. I, I love kind of going in cold. You know, when I feel that way, I don't go on social media. Exactly. Like nobody is holding a gun to your head. Like that's the, the people who are whining about like, oh, don't tweet spoilers. It's like, like turn off your alerts. Don't go on the internet. I, I do think the end game, you know, situation, I appreciate that people, you know, not everybody can get to the theater at the same time on opening day or whatever to see the movie. Um, but I, you know, so of course, it, it, I get why people would be anxious about, you know, other people tweeting spoilers or publications posting stories with spoilers in the headline, which of course, EW didn't do at all, because they knew like, that is how you get uh, yeah. users to abandon you on mass because they're angry. But, uh, you know, something like the Game of Thrones battle episode, like if you can't watch it live, then just turn off your phone. Just turn it off because otherwise it will be spoiled for you. I guess I want to know from a, 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 a viewer standpoint, like something like Dead to Me or a new show that you might be interested in, like how much... Do you, how important it, is it to you to, you know, it, it not, not know anything about the show going in? Or like, what do you, if I had revealed the one big secret in Dead to Me, which I didn't even reveal or I'm not going to reveal in my review, um, because again, it happens at the end of the first episode, but people are very sensitive. Like, if I had revealed it with that, how angry would you be? Or would it help you want to see the show? I guess I just want to know yeah. from readers and and just general viewers who don't do this for a living and don't get worked up into a rage by, you know, do not reveal lists. Like, how much do you want to know about a new show uh, from a review? Like, yeah, I think it's a good question, Kristen. And, you know, as we're kind of zeroing in on this question for TV specifically with a show that's been on for a while, um, as you kind of mentioned with Game of Thrones, I do sort of feel like there is this conventional wisdom emerging of like, listen, the night of, you know, even if you're kind of live tweeting it, maybe don't literally live tweet, oh my gosh, uh, you know, the dude with one eye just died, I can't believe it. You know, that seems like that is a little bit, a little bit um, unfair. But I feel like with, with, with that kind of television flow, by the next day, I kind of think it is on the viewer to police yes. themselves if they haven't watched it yet. With a new show, I struggle with this all the time. And, you know, one of the things that was interesting about talking about this show specifically is that it's kind of in the canon of TV where the pilot ends with a big twist yes. that kind of is the show. And I was trying to think back, Kristen, about other shows that are similar to this. And for some reason, I'm sure there are more obvious examples. The only two that really stuck out to me um, were the ABC sitcom The Job, starring Dennis Leary. Job fans out there, anyone, anyone. <laughs> um, uh, and, and the pilot of uh, Mad Men. Um, both kind of ended on a curiously similar twist, where a main character who you'd kind of seen like sleeping around with women in the city um, then went home to a wife that had right, not been mentioned right, right. at all yet. And like, you know, that was a cool moment. And I, I, I do remember watching both those episodes kind of being like, oh, like I'm kind of... Uh, 
I'm sort of reorienting myself a, a little bit here with, with regards to these characters. But I don't know if if you were writing about that at the time. I think that would be that's the show. You know? Exactly. <laughs> like, that's like you know you know you know, you know I happen to be tuned in, but you know as far as just basic fascination with a new series, that seems like pretty essential information, right? Exactly. And you had said to me earlier on in our conversation about this, like remember the original pilot of Modern Family. It was like a twist at the end that hey, they're all one family. And uh, This Is Us is another example where it's like the big twist at the end was like, oh, you know, we're going back in time and these are the kids from the other people and blah, blah, blah. And uh, that's my, you know, technical description of what happened in the this blah, 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 also a good review of, of, of this um, season, I but think. Like, Boom! And it, that was very much like, don't reveal, don't reveal. And now when you, you know, I guess I would say to viewers, like, if you had known now that, uh, that, uh, the big three twins were actually related and that the, those were their parents in the past. Like, would you have not wanted to watch This Is Us? If you had known that all the characters in Modern Family were related, would you have not liked or wanted to watch Modern Family? I just think at this point, you know, especially for binge shows, shows that release all at once, you know, how is it really worth it? To yeah. uh, what do, what does a viewer need uh, in order to get interested in one of the many, f- you know, five bazillion shows premiering each week? And is more information better, or are people still very skittish about spoilers? I yeah. would just love to hear uh, from listeners about this. Yeah, again, this is sort of an ongoing conversation, and I think that, like, you know, the goal, I, I think, Kristen, is to create rules for this stuff. Um, and, you know, as you said, rules for weekly TV, rules for binge shows. Um, but, you know, I, I wonder, Kristen, if it speaks to a just, a just a larger feeling I'm having with a lot of television now. This decade has been so focalized on surprise yeah. as a major effect in TV narrative. Um, and I'm kind of getting a little bored of that and not to say I'm bored of being surprised by TV because one of the good things about having a hundred shows is you can kind of get surprised every week. Yeah. But surprise as the main focus, um, I wonder if that is kind of a fading effect now, you know, we've had the sort of rise of JJ Abrams and how he has kind of worked on his star Wars movies is so focused on keeping stuff very secret. The Marvel movies operate the same way. The major TV shows where so much of the of the surprise ultimately comes down to who died and who didn't die. Um, that's all stuff that used to seem exciting, and I feel like it's starting to seem a little tired, um, just because, you know, that might initially be cool, but the way that stuff you've seen kind of lives in your memory and the, what makes you kind of pulled back to it to want to rewatch it, um, it's not the surprise. It's, no. it's all the stuff that actually makes the show. It's the acting. Exactly. It's, it's, it's the way the story is told it's the filmmaking um and so yeah i, I just sort of I, i'd love to kind of hear from people and maybe even hear examples of stuff where they felt like were there spoilers that went too far or were there things that they heard about in advance that actually made them want to check out yeah. something that they wouldn't have checked out otherwise i mean i almost feel like we need to wrap this up because i'm at the point where i want to just start screaming all the spoiler points from dead to me um just we'll do that next week yes, we'll do that next um, week just uh, out of spite 
Um, but everyone, uh, do uh, let us know uh, your thoughts on this ongoing matter. And, and if you've watched Dead to Me uh, yet, if you feel like what we're talking about, the big thing we're talking about where Linda Cardellini uh, uses the Infinity Gauntlet to kill half of the world, <laughs> if you think that's a big spoiler, uh, do let us know. Linda Cardellini having a great moment right oh, now, so by good. the way. She's everywhere. Uh, but you can tweet at us. She's at Kristen G. Baldwin. I'm at Darren Franich. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can find this podcast wherever you find your podcasts on radio.com on apple podcasts on spotify give us a rating give us a review we're critics so we have to receive criticism we read everything and we love to hear from you we want to make this show the best possible look at television that we can i should have a catchphrase but i don't so goodbye <laughs> <laughs>